Well, hello everybody. Welcome to another King and Seven podcast. This is now show number twenty-five. Uh, so I feel it's somewhat of a victory, or if not a victory, an accomplishment, that we now have quarter of a century of shows under our belt in the studio here. Um, and uh, like I mentioned last week, it's my intention to continue on with the show. Um, I do sense that we've lost some momentum because of the break that we took from recording the shows, but um, I believe by God's providence and grace, we'll be, we'll be able to uh, to pick things back up again and um, start putting out more shows, more interviews, more sermons. So hopefully all of the previous mentioned is to come, and um, I am enjoying it, and that's why I do it. I enjoy it. I love to communicate God's truth, and it seems to be that in any given week, the Lord would uh, is pleased rather to lay something upon my heart or to get me thinking upon a certain biblical theme or topic that I feel needs addressing or communicating. So this week is no exception, but before I begin with the topic at hand, I just want to make some brief announcements. Um, You might have noticed if you logged onto the website between October 18th and the 20th that there was nothing there. And the reason for that is I had uh, accidentally forgot to renew the uh, domain name. And then uh, when I went to check it myself, on the evening of the 20th, I realized that there was nothing uh, shown on the uh, display page or the home page other than a GoDaddy uh, advertisement. So I quickly went in, changed all that. So if you went onto the page on those dates, I do apologize. We are still here. We haven't gone anywhere. And uh, it's our intention to stay here. Uh, secondly, um, just to remind you once more concerning the, the podcast, uh, on that home page, you'll notice on the right-hand side, there's a right icon, an iTunes icon that you can click on that will automatically subscribe you to the podcast. So I would encourage you uh, to click on that, uh, and that way you can be subscribed uh, to the show. Um, There are some other things as well in in the works. I'm going to have D.D. Warren on again. Sometime next month we're going to finish off our exposition of the Olivet Discourse. Very much looking forward to that. Um, Plan to put up some sermons and some other things that I believe you will find interesting. But speaking of eschatology, and I don't know why this happens, but eschatology is an inescapable thought pattern of my life. And I don't consider that a bad thing. I know a lot of people get into eschatology and they become quite obsessed and if not weird about it. It seems to be that if you find somebody who really specializes in eschatology, there are exceptions, of course, but for the most part, there is uh, sometimes an unhealthy fascination with the subject. Um, But thinking about it once more, maybe in light of uh, the future show with Dee Dee, um, I got thinking uh, afresh about the uh, already not yet principle of the New Testament scriptures. And uh, for those who are new to that phrase, the already not yet principle is uh, a phrase that was originally, I believe, coined by Gerhardus Voss. He was a Dutch theologian. And he said that when you read the New Testament scriptures, it's basically broken down into two distinct ages. The first age, which is the age that is now, from creation to the return of Christ, and the age that is to come, all the events following the return or the consummation of this age, uh, or the return of Christ, I should say. And um, when I was thinking about this basic theme, this basic hermeneutic, that undergirds much of New Testament scripture. Uh, I believe the Lord just impressed upon me to uh, to 
bring a small teaching uh, to bring to mind once more the importance of understanding this and its implications. That this is not just some dry academic exercise that we're going to do here, hopefully, but this is um, a biblical redemptive truth that puts you and me in the right place, in the right context within redemptive history so that we can have a right expectation about the future and I would say an accurate uh, understanding of the present. And we're going to be dipping into certain eschatological views that um, I believe take off on a different trajectory from the already not yet principle of Scripture and find themselves elsewhere with different conclusions. So, for example, you, uh, for those who are Bible students, you will be familiar with the views of the millennium. And for those who are new to that phrase, the the, uh, the New Testament scriptures in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, speak of this thousand-year reign of Christ with the saints. And there's been all types of debates down through the, the ages, or through the church age, I should say, concerning uh, this issue. And some have said that this is referring to a distinct, literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth after his return. And those people who would occupy that position would call themselves pre-millennialists. That word pre meaning before course and millennium being that thousand-year period. And they would read that in a very wooden, literal sense. And on the other swing of the pendulum, you have a position known as post-millennialism. And post-millennialism, as post means, means after the millennium, which states that Christ will return after the thousand-year reign. And within that position, there are some who would say this is a literal thousand-year reign that is yet future, which uh, denotes or is the uh, golden age of the church, whereby the nation shall be Christianized upon the fulfillment of that Christ shall return. Or there are those who see this as symbolic, where they see the first advent of Christ beginning the millennial reign of Christ, which is a figure of speech that will be consummated or concluded upon his second coming or upon his second advent. And uh, within that, you have another position known as amillennialism, as I like to say it, uh, from Britain. I know most Americans like to pronounce it amillennialism. But to me, that comes across as if you're discovering it for the first time. You know, like, ah, millennialism. <laughs> but that's, that's not the best way to go when you're presenting a position that, that I maintain is biblical. Um, <laughs> joking aside, but amillennialism teaches that, yes, the thousand-year reign of Christ is symbolic. And the reason an amillennialist would say that is because the word uh, for a thousand years in the Greek and in Greek thought, basically spoke of a long duration of an undefined period of time. That's how the word was used. So, for example, in modern vernacular, in modern phraseology, we sometimes say, oh, that's never going to happen in a million years. I bet you a million dollars. Now, most people recognize that that's a figure of speech. When somebody says that's going to happen in a million years, they're not conceding to the fact that after a million years, it will happen. It's just speaking of this long duration of time that basically is absolute, or if not absolute, undefined in its length and longevity. So when we get to the scriptures, we find that the word thousand is the highest 
uh, unit of number uh, the writers would use. For example, in Second Peter 3, it says how um, a thousand days, a thousand years rather, it's like a day unto the Lord, and, a, and uh, a day is like a thousand years unto the Lord. It didn't say a million. So they were used to using this phrase, thousand. Um, in the Old Testament, it says the Lord rules cattle upon a thousand hills. Now, that doesn't mean upon a thousand and one hills he ceases to be Lord and, and uh, sovereign over his creation. It's a figure of speech to talk about almost an insurmountable number that is finite, but from a human perspective, it's almost insurmountable. So I believe that's how the Bible uses that. And for those who have the more premillennial persuasion, I would challenge you when you look at that text from Revelation 20, that the other things going on there uh, are full of symbolism. For example, the binding of Satan and the angel that has a great chain in his, in his hand. Those things are not to be taken literally, but figuratively. Yes, speaking of actual events, but we don't want to have a wooden literal interpretation of the passage when it's in the most apocalyptic, uh, symbolic book of the entire Bible. So whenever you base your theology on the most symbolic and not the didactic, I think there's going to be a problem. So I'm kind of doing this with reverse engineering here, but kind of beginning at the end of the Bible to get to my point about the already not yet principle of Scripture. But taking what the didactic, clear passages of Scripture teaches on the already not yet, the age that now is and the age that is to come, serves as a framework to best interpret those more, uh, I would say, obscure passages, especially Revelation 20. So I want to unpack this, uh, this principle a bit more so you can have it in clear view and clear thinking. And you'd be surprised the, uh, the level and depth of application it can have uh, to one's Christian walk. But let's go to the New Testament Scriptures and let's start by speaking of the present age. Because I know those who are students who have done their homework know that at times the word age can speak of an economy uh, or an era. We see that in, in secular history, the Bronze Age, the Ice Age, uh, the Medieval Age, the Enlightenment. You know, these are different ages where a certain philosophy or a certain way of living characterized the whole era. We see that. And even in the Old Testament, when Israel were going into apostasy, it was spoken of as the last days. So you had this idea of an end of an age. Um, so this is all granted and accepted. But it's not the big picture. It's only when we get to the New Testament scriptures that we see that there's basically two overarching ages that encompass all these other sub-ages. And that is the age that now is, begin with creation and then the fall, all the way to the second coming of Christ. And I believe there are many scriptures that speak to this. Uh, for example, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that we are saved from this present evil age. What does that mean? Just looking at that verse, yes, the context is quite clear about the present evil age being uh, an age characterized by sin. But just looking at that one verse, it would be an immediate tip-off that this is not just speaking of some unique era within world history. The evil age 
Can you think of an age that wasn't evil or characterized by sin? Not every age has had that in common. So we see there when uh, the apostle writes, we are saved from this present evil age, he means more than just first century Palestine or ever since the inauguration of the new covenant or ever since the inauguration of the old covenant even. But this evil age, another passage, Second uh, Corinthians 4.4, 4, says that Satan is the present God, lowercase g, of course, of this age. Now, ever since the fall, was Satan ever completely bound and judged that he would no longer interrupt in the affairs of man? Never. Even in the New Testament age that we look at in a few moments, he still has some influence, of course. He's still a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So ever since he used the serpent in the garden to deceive Eve and to bring Adam into transgression, he has been the god of this age, lowercase g. Now God is ultimately sovereign over this, uppercase g, but that's the passage in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, there are other passages as well in 1 Corinthians 7. I don't think of the exact verse, but 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about how this present age is passing away. And the context of that is marriage. For example, I believe it's in Luke 20 and in, in Matthew as well. It speaks about how the people of this age are given into marriage. Now, how, how long have people been given into marriage? Well, since the dawn of time, since the creation. Because we read Genesis, don't we, in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man should leave his family and cleave to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. So Jesus says, in this age, people are given into marriage. But in the age to come, and he's speaking of the resurrection, he says that in that age, we will not be given into marriage, but we'll be like the angels in heaven. So you see that the New Testament scriptures are really clear on this, that there is this present age that began with the fall of man in the garden and will not be concluded and terminated until the second coming of Christ. And how do we know that? Well, let's go to some scriptures in, in the Gospels that clearly speak to this. For example, for those familiar with the teachings of Christ and his parables in Matthew 13, you might recall the story of the, uh, the good seed and the bad seed, uh, the, uh, the weeds and the good, the good corn that grows up together. It's found in Matthew 13, verse 24. I'll read it to you. It says, And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. So he not called wheat. And went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you up, uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. So what's he talking about here? Well, obviously, you don't want to base a doctrine on a parable. But in this parable, in the very same chapter, we actually have the explanation by Christ. 
because in verse 36 we read, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the claws of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the claws of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He was near, let him hear. So there we see he speaks of the field as the world and two types of seed. The bad seed are the sons of the evil one, verse 38, and the good seed are the seeds of the son, the believer, the Christian. And the reapers are the angels and speaks how the angels want to immediately uh, take the fruit of the earth, take the saints out of this present evil age. And the Lord prevents them from doing so because he says, if you do that, then, or if you remove the weeds, sorry, if you do that, then you will essentially uh, pluck up the saints as well. So we have this redemptive overlap between the age that now is and the age that is to come. The age that is to come has been brought forth through the Holy Spirit and through the Gospel. Because the Bible says that we already have certain uh, blessings within the covenant community. For example, the Bible says that we are justified by faith alone. That's a present reality. Romans 5.1 Seeing therefore we have been justified by faith alone, we have peace with God. Or we have the, uh, the first fruits of the Spirit. As I mentioned a few moments ago, in Ephesians 1 it says, We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. This is elsewhere spoken of as the gift of the Spirit. It also says that we have adoption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Hebrews 8, speaking of the new covenant coming to full inauguration in the New Testament age. Forgiveness of sins, regeneration, justification by faith alone, adoption, sanctification in this present age. But the Bible says we still wait the final day of redemption. For example, it says in Romans 8 that we have the first fruits of the Spirit by which we groan and wait for the redemption of our bodies. And that's very clear, straightforward language. It's talking about how we have been justified by faith alone. We have received the Spirit, but we have not yet been glorified. Now, there's a few people running out there, called hyperpreterists and others of different strands and flavors, who would say, you know, we're already glorified. We're already in new heavens, new earth. Well, my friends, if this is the new heavens, new earth, then I'm living in the ghetto, okay? Because I'm not seeing what they're seeing. But according to the scriptures here, it's saying that we are presently in possession of eternal life. John 5 says this. He who believes in me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. John 12. But at the same time, 
Galatians 5.4, I believe it is, we wait for the hope of righteousness. The saints in heaven are described as those saints made perfect. We have not yet been perfected as those saints who've died and gone on to be with the Lord. But we find when they do go on to be with the Lord, they are confirmed in ethical righteousness and do partake of the first resurrection as as Revelation 20 identifies it. But we are in this age, this present evil age, and although we have been saved out of it, Jesus says, I do not wish you to leave the world, but that you would be my witnesses in this fallen present world, which is another way of speaking of this evil age. So once we have this in clear view, once we understand what the New Testament scriptures are teaching here, especially with this parable, about how the sinner and the saint coexist together. And even though the angels were wanting to uh, separate the two so that the saints could be purified and confirmed in their ethical righteousness, the Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, has delayed that day. For what reason? Well, going to the Gospel of John in chapter 6, it says, All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. Marvel not when I tell you this, that no one can come on to me unless the Father first draw him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see here that the Father sent the Son to redeem a special people through Christ's perfect redemptive work. And it says that all of those people must come to Christ before the consummation of this age. But in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says that the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not wishing that any should perish. But the day of the Lord shall come in a th- as a thief in the night and judge the ungodly and the impenitent. And that passage there is a warning even to the saints to be found in Christ. But what I want to glean from it is this idea that the Bible clearly teaches that God has his elect. And he's waiting for all of his elect to come to Christ. And when all of the elect have come to Christ, then Christ will return and consummate human history. The reason why the sun came up this morning and we went about our business, whatever it may be, wherever you find your vocational life, the reason the sun came up this morning, we had another day of this world, of this present evil age, is because God still has his elect out there that have yet to come to Christ. In fact, some elect persons, I imagine, have not yet even been born. But they will eventually infallibly, most certainly, come to Christ, as John's success. And when that happens, when the final person who is elect unto eternal salvation repents and places their faith in Christ, then there's no reason for the Lord to tolerate one more day of sin upon this earth. And that's why Second Peter 3 goes on to say, for this reason we have the expectation that we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So Galatians 1.4, this present evil age is characterized by sin and evil and is passing away, 
and Saturn is the god of this age. And we look forward to the new heavens, new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. This is all understood under the rubric of the already not yet principle of Scripture. That we have been saved, but we will be saved. We have been brought into the kingdom. Colossians bears this out. We've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son, it says. But we wait for the full consummation of the kingdom. And the Bible says that in this present age, the kingdom is restricted to the church, namely the Holy Spirit. That in this present world, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And we went to some of those verses that clearly teach this. And Paul, Apostle Paul was constantly correcting misunderstandings about the kingdom. Jesus was correcting misunderstandings about the kingdom. Luke 17, for example. Jesus says the kingdom of God comes not with observation, but the kingdom of God is within you. In John 20, I believe it says, the kingdom that I bring is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this place. Because it's so holy and so pure. And some people say, well, that, that just sounds Gnostic to me. That only the spirit is holy and the, and the physical is unholy. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's saying that we as image bearers of God, have rebelled against God and God cannot accept us on our own grounds. But we can only be accepted in the beloved. We can only be in the kingdom because of Christ's perfect meritorious work, his active and passive obedience as it's known. Sealing our guarantee of redemption, for redemption through the gospel. We need to have an understanding of this issue, of this theological position, that we are presently saved, but we are going to be saved. And that the New Testament age is limited to the word and sacrament administration of the church and the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the believers concerning the kingdom before the fullness of the kingdom comes in Christ's second coming, in Christ's return when he consummates human history. And at that point, 1 Corinthians 15 says that the Son will deliver up his kingdom to the Father and then God will be all in all. And then everywhere will be the messianic kingdom of God. Yes, we all accept the providential kingdom of God is everywhere, but I'm talking about the redemptive kingdom of God here. And I know the Bible says there in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that the Lord must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. But we mustn't interpret that to the overriding of all these other scriptures where we have this expectation, this false expectation in my understanding that the kingdom is beyond those boundaries that I've just laid out. That the kingdom is going to be the family, the kingdom is going to be uh, the institutions of man the economy, the government, the nations. If that's, if that's the glory of the kingdom, I think we're selling ourselves, selling ourselves short. But the kingdom is far greater than that. And we're only in it because of Christ's perfect obedience. That's the qualification, my friends, for entrance into the kingdom. Perfect, 100% obedience. It's just... For us who have received grace in Christ, it's Christ's obedience 
that is imputed to us. You see that? So, breaking this down to its application, breaking this down to basically uh, the language of the pew or to its, uh, its conclusion. Why is this important? Well, the reason I feel this is so important is when we understand this, I think we can deal with what, what life throws at us more or the reality of this life. Because if I can accept that I'm still feeling the effects of the curse, even though I am re redeemed judicially from the curse, but the effects nevertheless are still seen every day in my circumstances, in my life, everywhere I look. It's seen on the news. It's seen in my mortal frame. If I can accept that, then I can look heavenward, can't I? For that final day when those things shall be no more. That's why it says in the new heavens and new earth, he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more suffering, no more pain. But if we have this expectation that in this life we can have a bed of roses, in this life things are going to be tickety-boo all the time because we're Christian and we're following Christ and we're being faithful and that we can expect this globalization of the Christian community whereby everything is Christianized before the return of Christ, I don't think that comports with New Testament scripture. And I know many people say, well, what about you do with this scripture or that scripture? What about the Old Testament, the prophecies that speak of this grand, glorious kingdom? Well, you've got to understand those Old Testament prophecies that are types and shadows of the New Testament scriptures have to be taken in light of those New Testament scriptures. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when it talks about a glorified Israel or a glorified earth, I'm thinking of Isaiah 65, when it talks about new heavens, new earth, and people living to 100 years, considered a curse, people having a long life. Those prophecies were given through the lens of Israel to accommodate the people of Israel. But when we get to the New Testament, it's like taking it to its apex taken to its full clarity and basically the New Testament authors are saying this was the type and shadow it's not just that we get to live longer but the reality is we get eternal life in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever you see that so I went back into the theology there I didn't mean to but I did <laughs> but getting back to the application if we can understand this if we can understand where we are in redemptive history I think we can focus on the right things. Because yes, we would all love to see a Christian society. We would all love to see the victorious Christian life in every set. But as I've taught in previous broadcasts, sometimes life doesn't work. And if you have that expectation, what are you going to do when life doesn't work? And I've known of real godly men who have had either a reconstructionist view of the future or a very optimistic view of the future. And for that, I can't even, um, I can't even uh, have a negative thing to say about that in itself. But it's led to them, I believe, being distracted. Like, well, we've got to save the American economy. We've got to save the world because we're the United States. <laughs> and it sounds all patriotic and good, but can we accomplish such a feat? 
one, we can't even afford it. You know, but but secondly, even if we could afford it, do we have the manpower and the discipline and the willpower to accomplish such a feat in this present age? Why put that weight upon our shoulders? Because I find in my Christian walk that the day-to-day battles of relationships, of finance, of of the church, of, of, of doctrine, you name it, that's enough to keep me busy, folks. I'm busy enough just with those things. So I fear for some that they might put unnecessary weight upon themselves, that we're not truly living the Christian life until we have all these other things in place. Because I think at times, I believe the New Testament scriptures bear this out, but I'm going to get a bit subjective here. I believe at times God just purposely messes with things. Even though he calls us to be perfect, and this is a deep mystery of God, or paradox I should say, I think at times if we do perfection for ourselves, which we normally do, he'll mess with it and show us how much we need him how much we're dependent upon him. Because the Bible says, I believe in 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh will boast before God. That yes, we can have a sense of optimism in our personal sanctification, but we can't expect that to ripple effect to make our entire world, even if it's our own world, that, that you know, your own life, your finances, your relationships, your ministry, whatever, to have all that to squeaky clean and line up. Because the God of this age roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yes, the Bible says, those who belong to Christ, the evil one cannot touch them. Touch them. First John five nineteen, I believe, clearly teaches this. But at the same time, to expect everybody to be in the same place as you spiritually, to have the same understanding as you, it's just not going to happen. So, the already not yet principle, in conclusion. Let's just see the big picture, first and foremost, so we have the right framework to understand what God is doing. But in personal application, I think it puts things in the right priority. That Yes, we want to see changes in government. Yes, we want to see changes in the economy. But if your relationship with God isn't right, who cares? You know, I like Glenn Beck, okay? I admit, I like Glenn Beck. He's a bit eccentric, but I like him. But folks, he's a Mormon. And yes, he might be able to say some good things for this nation. But if he doesn't have the true Christ of Scripture, who cares? If I don't have the true Christ of Scripture, who cares? And even with the true Christ of Scripture, those good, faithful Christians who have a wrong view, I believe, of the future, I think you're going to spread yourself way too thin <laughs> trying to accomplish these things. And I know it's only by God's grace that we accomplish anything in our lives. But when you look at all the New Testament scriptures that speak about contentment, how many verses speak on contentment in Christ? How many scriptures talk about standing and maintaining your position? I think a lot more than go take dominion, take over, be in charge. How many scriptures talk about patience, 
How many scriptures talk about the fruit of the Spirit? How many scriptures talk about your own personal sanctification on the very interpersonal levels of your life? Ephesians 6, when it talks about uh, slaves obeying their masters, I mean, the application of that would be employees obeying their, their employers. Or the the relationship between a, a, a mother and and, uh, and a son or a daughter, or a father and a son and a daughter. It says in Ephesians 6.3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. I think those things are so much more important. I know a lot of people would agree with this, even those who disagree with my eschatology or what I'm teaching here. But regardless where you find yourself, on the millennial positions, on how you interpret the already not yet principle of Scripture, make sure that those things are central. That you're waiting for the blessed hope, as Titus 3, Titus 2.13 says. And that in this present evil age, you're living soberly and, and denying ungodliness, it says. Or in Colossians 3 when it says, we're keeping our eyes fixed on the things which are above, where Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. Because your life is hid with Christ in God. But when Christ who is our life shall appear, then we shall appear with him in glory. Notice that. Our lives are hid. Not on open display right now. In Thessalonians, it says, learn to mind your own business, working with your own hands, to live a quiet life. You say, well, that sounds kind of bland, small. I don't think so. If we, only, if we truly understood the power of prayer, I mean, people at prayer meetings recently. If we truly understood the power of the gospel to transform our lives. When Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. If we truly understood the, the verses that say godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Is that boring? Is that unfulfilling? If it is, then we need to ask ourselves the questions, why? And there's so many people, and we're all guilty from, from one time or another, to focus on a secondary thing and think that we're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> right there, the big letter on the eye chart your personal sanctification, your personal fulfillment in God is going to miss. And I believe that the already not yet principle of Scripture, if rightly interpreted and understood, is completely compatible with the things that I've just shared. That if you understand that, then you're going to understand what you must prioritize in this life so that we can have joy forevermore in the next life. So, there you have it. I think I'll leave it like that. I think I've said enough. And thank you for listening. Um, next time we'll do something, as always, completely different. Uh, not sure as yet what we'll be doing. But I thank you for listening to this show. And uh, I hope you're blessed by it. And feel free to tell others. Get the word out there. And uh, let's see what the Lord might do. But thank you for listening, and uh, I'll see you all next time. God bless you all.